Guess what? What? You're an author. Oh, my God. You're right. You wrote a book. I did write a book. And it's called Stop Blaming Mothers and Ignoring Fathers, How to Transform the Way We Keep Children Safe from Domestic Violence. Right. And it's available on Amazon, Amazon. Kindle. It's softcover. It's hardcover. Yeah. And it's a book that lays out six myths that really dive into these gaps in the field that the safety of the models is meant to fix or transform. Mm-hmm. It talks about gender double standards. It has interviews with practitioners and, and survivors. survivors and practical things you can do. But it really kind of is it's good for anybody who knows the model or is new to the model. And uh, I'm really excited about it. It only took two and a half years to do. Okay. Well, go get the book on Amazon.com. Okay, we're back. Oh, wait. I'm back, too, but I don't have a microphone. Where are we? We're in Melbourne, Australia. And what are we doing? We're doing the Safe and Together Asia Pacific Conference. And who are we with? My name's Kira. Thank you so much for having me on the show. And Kira, where (laughs) are you from? I'm from my hometown at the moment, Ferntree Gully, in Melbourne, Australia. And what... Do you do? I'm work at Berry Street. I'm a lived experience consultant, so I use my lived experiences of disadvantage uh, to advocate for myself and other young people. Uh, for what? What exactly are you advocating for? So we we want to change the systems and services that has hurt us and let us slip through the cracks. So I work in a team of eight, mm. um, and yeah, we want to we want to create change throughout through using our lived experiences to yeah change the systems and. Um, yeah. And how has the Safe and Together model hooked up with that value that you have about changing the systems? Um, I think the Safe and Together conference has given us uh, young people a space to talk about our experiences and um, to hopefully change some workers' minds or challenge uh, some assumptions and biases that people have towards young people who've experienced family violence. Wonderful. So today we're actually going to be interviewing Ryan Hart, and I'm going to interview him on this exact same podcast. (laughs) And so I hear that you are making a podcast, and I know it's not there yet, but if you could just speak the name of your podcast... Go ahead and tell everybody yeah, what it's going to be. Yeah, of course. So um, the project that I'm working on was funded by the Victorian Women's Trust and Berry Street, and it's called Project Unbroken. Uh, it's a toolkit for life after sexual assault. <laughs> oh, we got music. We got a music in the background. Doing a little on. dance yep. here. <laughs> yep, yep. <laughs> this is a live podcast, everybody. Okay. So you're going to get you're going to get different noises in the background from our <laughs> conference. So go ahead and explain that again. So it's lived experiences. Yeah. Of Lived experiences of sexual assault. So um, myself and I'm working alongside 15 other survivors of sexual assault to talk about um, on this podcast our survival tips, our coping mechanisms, whether that be healthy or not. Where This is real-life experiences of what people um, experience, life after sexual assault. And mm-hmm. it's something that's not talked about. So we really want to get the conversation out there and have that public conversation to help other survivors and make it really accessible for everyone with a lived experience. So, Kira, you're our first guest on the podcast. Just want to let you know that. And so um, we're going to slip this into our, our larger podcast. And um, want to ask you if you could speak to professionals, because this podcast partnered with a survivor the audience is professionals and to um, family members and uh, to survivors themselves. Mm-hmm. What's one message you'd like to get out to professionals working with survivors and particularly young people? Yeah, so um, what I really want 
uh, to tell workers who work with young people with a lived experience of family violence um, is that it's so important to hear directly from children and young people and get their experiences from them in their own ver- in their own um, in their own language and what they want to say and it's so important to not have assumptions Mm. about your own personal biases about what that child or young person has experienced and make sure that um, you kind of put your assumptions and your biases aside if there's a young person who's saying something that's a bit different from the normal narrative. Mm -hmm. I think that a lot of the time um, the narrative out there is that the the father is the perpetrator of family violence and the mother is the victim and children and young people are not seen as a primary victim of family violence and it doesn't even cover when the mother is the perpetrator or when it's sibling violence and me personally I didn't know that I experienced family violence because I thought I never saw my dad be violent towards my Mm mum so I didn't see that as family violence and when I tried to talk about my experiences um I was often shut down and say siblings fight and that's that's mm. okay you know it happens mm-hmm. um when something didn't feel right to me which is why I tried to talk about it right mm. yeah no I get that and I, I really feel that part of the problem is is that we've to use David's language siloed uh sexual violence into its own container as if that's not part of the wider patterns of manipulation of power and control mm-hmm of a perpetrator or a person who's choosing violence. And uh, we really have forgotten that sexual violence is about power. Mm. It's not actually about sex. It's not about uh, pleasure. It's about power over another person. And that's just another manifestation of coercive control and a wider pattern of domestic abuse. So I really hear what you're saying. Now, Kira, I'd love for you to introduce your mates today because you're on a panel. Yes. And if they would like to be introduced, <laughs> they can. If they if they don't wish to be introduced, that's okay. And then we're gonna we're gonna cut and we're gonna do the rest of the podcast <laughs> with Reinhardt. So go ahead. Cool. So um, we're part of the Why Change team at Berry Street, and this is my colleague Caitlin and Tash. So. Hi, Caitlin. What's your role at Barry Street? Um, so I'm also a lived experience consultant with Kira. Lovely, lovely. And then Tash? Hi. hi um, yeah, so my role is basically kind of lived experience consultant, but I've moved into more of a role that sort of mentored sort of the, the newer Y Change teams mm-hmm. um, and also sort of like going into my own sort of advocacy route. But yeah. So here we have a team of just powerful, powerful youth women on our panel. And we're so privileged to have you on our podcast. Thank you very, very much. Thank you so much for having us. Okay, cheers. Cheers. All right. All right. So we are back. This is the second part of this podcast, which I think is winding up to be the lived experiences uh, survivor podcast. And we earlier had had the panel of the Y team from Barry, Y, y, change, y change from Barry Street. Uh, and they were all teenagers and survivors. And some of them had been through the foster care system. And their their stories were amazing. And they really spoke eloquently about how um, we shouldn't think about children who are growing up in households um, where there's intimate partner violence or there's perpetration of family violence is we shouldn't think about them as secondary victims and and that often they're being targeted directly that they're that they're involved intimately uh, they're often partnering with other family members to keep each other safe 
you know, there's all these different ways this plays out. And I think this um, discussion with, with Luke Hart, I'm sorry, Ryan. Ryan, Ryan I apologize, Ryan, you know, because we've had Luke at our conference as well, Ryan's brother. Um, that this conversation with Ryan is really fits right in there with it. Yeah, so we haven't introduced him yet, um, and um, I'm just going to say this is the podcast partnered with a survivor uh, from Safe and Together Institute. I'm David Mandel, the Executive Director of the Safe and Together Institute. And I'm Ruth Stearns-Bandel, and I'm the e-learning and communications manager. And we do have Ryan Hart here with us, and we are really grateful we are in uh, Melbourne, Australia, at our third annual Safe and Together Asia-Pacific Conference with Barry Street. And he was one of our keynote speakers. Uh, his brother has keynoted for us previously as well. And one of the reasons that I wanted to have him on the podcast was this is the Lived Experiences, Survivors, Voices podcast. And Ryan and Luke lived in coercive control. And we're not going to go all the way into the backstory because I really want to talk about what coercive control looks like. But I, I will tell, if, do you want to just tell sort of the outline of the story, just very briefly? Yeah, so briefly, we, we grew up with a father who was controlling, dominating um, of every aspect of our lives, and particularly our mother's life. She had no freedoms. Um, our father tried to destroy every part of our hopes and our dreams and our confidence and self-esteem. Um, and we just, we just dismissed it as really just... That's what men are like, maybe. That's what fathers are like. What can we do? Um, we never saw it as abuse because our father was, crucially, was never violent towards us. Mm-hmm. And, and that's kind of why we, we couldn't really see what we were experiencing because we had an incorrect stereotype in our mind of what an abuser looks like and what a victim looks like. And because there was no abuse, we, because there was no uh, physical abuse, um, we kind of dismissed it as everyday, normal just life cranky angry aggressive mean self-centered sort of human right yeah Yeah. and and we just thought you know one like what can we do but also like is this just what life is like i don't know i'm a Mm -hmm. a kid i've not experienced anything better or different um but we we knew we none of us were happy Uh, none of us had a life um and and especially Luke and I, we knew we had to get Mum and Charlotte free, mm-hmm. get them that freedom they always deserved, to get them that, that independence that they always craved and wanted and, and deserved. Um, so we worked hard, got good jobs, saved up every penny we had, and managed to, to get a rental house to escape to with Mum and Charlotte, mm-hmm. thinking that would be the start of our lives, we'd be safe, mm-hmm. and we'd be able to do what we wanted. Um, and yeah, we thought that was the start um, of our new lives together. Uh, but it was only five days later, when Luke and I were just gone back to work, we thought, you know, we were buzzing with, with excitement and, and, and pride. Um, one morning I went on my news app, five days after the escape, and we found out that our father had killed our mum and our sister that morning. Yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, aside from the tremendous grief and pain that all of us feel at that story the frustration the frustration that I feel that we really don't get non-physical forms of violence Mm -hmm. and people believe that violent or abusive men are monsters and and they're they're really just human beings that are living in society and choosing 
to harm their families in really specific ways. Um, And I think that it would be really beneficial to talk about the behaviors of coercive control, what that looks like, if you wouldn't mind going into that. Yeah, as as you said, so we were looking for violence to be the indicator that something was wrong, that we weren't safe. So we were thinking that, you know, for us to be in danger, there had to be an escalation of violence. He would first off, he would slap us, then he would throw us against the wall, then we'd maybe get a broken arm. And, And we thought, okay, that's obvious and that's what we're looking for. Um, we were completely unaware that domestic abuse is about controlling another person's life. Um, and violence is, is a means to gain control in some cases. Our father had found ways to control us without violence. Um, so when we were looking for violence escalating, it meant that we were m- missing the signs, which was his control escalating over us. Um, and really when we started to pin the, the dots together, it was clear that increasing levels of control that he was exercising over us mm-hmm. throughout our lives mm-hmm. leading up to the murders. And so we missed it because we were looking for the wrong thing. Right. We, we, were, we were looking, like you said, for, for monsters. We were looking for these big, you know, headline acts, the bruise, the broken bone, the thrown down the stairs. And because of that, we missed the real dangers and the real signs that we were victims and we were in danger. And that was the, the behaviors, the control, the entitlement. I think we really are are failing families and culture with how we define um, violence and Mm -hmm. and family violence and domestic abuse. And I think still we're struggling with this idea that it has to include physical violence and broken bones and black eyes to be... um, to be identified as dangerous, and I, and I think that, or even just threats of physical, or violence. threats of physical violence, and yeah. I think that one of the things that, because um, I spent a lot of time working with with men who've been violent and working in this field, you know what you see over and over again is people who are willing to use the vulnerabilities of their loved ones against them, mm-hmm. and and use their love for each other, which I you know which is part of what. When I heard your story yesterday and I've heard your brother talk, you know that, that your dad actively used your caring for each other against each other and your caring for, for, the, for the pets, for your dogs. Mm-hmm. And I think what people should be looking for is, is in a relationship that's supposed to be relationships, family relationships, that are supposed to be nurturing and, and caring and supportive. People can be mean to each other. People can say... Um, Nasty things, unpleasant things. That sort of happens. That's you know, it can be you sort of, you struggling with. It. That's part of normal life. Yeah. But when people are engaging in patterns of behavior mm-hmm. over and over again, but particularly willing to use people's vulnerabilities, their soft spots, their things that are normal, caring for your pets or your siblings, your mom is normal. It's healthy. It's appropriate. Mm-hmm. But systematically using that to hurt and control both the person targeting, but other people who are are in the home. Those should be really serious warning signs because it's 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 a violation of love it's a betrayal of love it's a use of people's goodness and caring and and against them to control them and i think nobody needs to be physically hit for that to be hugely damaging yeah yeah like we know statistically that the coercive control is a far better indicator of potential um lethality than is violence um right in, in England especially, um, almost all domestic homicides have a history of coercive control, uh, and a third of them have had no violence at right. all before that point. So right. that control is not only an indicator of potential lethality, but as you mentioned, it's also extremely damaging. 
you don't have to have physical violence or be a victim of physical violence to be hurt, mm. to be living in fear, to be afraid, to be to have your life destroyed. And, and that's kind of what we went through, was we were living smaller and smaller lives. Yeah, you had talked about um, your mom and how, you know, I describe course of control like living in torture. And uh, talked in one of the podcasts about the Kubark scale, the Kubark uh, interrogation methods that uh, our military uses to interrogate people while not using physical violence, but while using psychological uh, methods to to torture people, to create an atmosphere of fear, of a lack of sense of power and control. Um, to make their world very, very small and um, and by using those methods to gain information or power over. And um, the military has really studied the impacts of it and it is far more damaging in the long term than physical violence is. And actually, the people who are trained in PSYOPs, their motto is PSYOPs because physical wounds heal. Yeah. They know all of this information, and we actually do know this information really, really well. But I was thinking of your mom the other day, and, and David was saying, using your vulnerabilities against you, how she had um, she had uh, uh, trigeminal neuralgia, which is an incredibly painful uh, disease, and actually my, my, my father has it as well, um, and how your father would ratchet up the stress, the demands... Um, would yell and scream until she went into a um, into an episode and was in tremendous pain and unable to operate. And this is using people's vulnerabilities against them is a really common way uh, to d- identify a coercive controller. And I just want to say that when I talk about vulnerabilities, when we talk about vulnerabilities, we're talking about illnesses. We're talking about trauma. If somebody's using your trauma history against you to control you, that's coercive control. If somebody is using uh, a learning disability or a physical disability against you, then they're being coercively controlling. If they're using information about your past, um, about your insecurities, about your fears in order to control you, that's coercive control. So we're going to need to wrap up in a minute, but I... But, uh, Ryan, one more question for you, because you and your brother speak so eloquently about the media response and the the view that you think in some ways may have egged on or encouraged your dad, at least the way he thought about what he was going to do. But then after he murdered your your mom and your sister, how the response uh, was so... um, I, you know, and it, unfortunately, it's so common. I don't want to say unbelievable, but it's believable because it happened so much, which was sort of empathetic or sympathetic to him. And yesterday, I was feeling all my rage about sort of people saying, "Well, he was pushed to it." So, can you you speak so well about this? Yeah. So clearly about this part, can you speak to that? Yeah. So our father, leading up to the murder, so he was researching about the about other domestic homicides. Um, he constructed his murder note from what he'd read um, in the online from other homicides, from other men killing their families. And he read reports of men being excused for their actions, men being justified mm. in the decades of abuse they inflicted on their families and the murder of their families. And our father received the exact same treatment. Um, 
he was quoted as a nice guy. He was always caring. His the murder of Mum and Charlotte was almost mm-hmm. um, ignored because he had DIY skills. Even it mm-hmm. was just trivial aspects of his personality mm-hmm. were were used to to offset murder of two beautiful mm-hmm. women, and mm-hmm. it just it showed us. Um, and also the, the idea that a monster mm-hmm. had kind of sprung up out of nowhere that he was a monster. Um, it was ignoring the fact that. You know, what my father chose to do to our family for 25 years and what he chose to do to Mum and Charlotte was a choice. Yeah. It was trying to imply that something, something external, and that external thing was often my mum, trying to imply that she was responsible mm-hmm. for what he did. Yeah. And it's really exactly the same um, thought process and justification that our father had always used. He always blamed us for his choices. Mm-hmm. Um, he always blamed us for pushing him, for right. provoking him. And it kind of, we were seeing our father's narrative in the mainstream media. And right. it, it showed us that what our, we suffered as a family wasn't isolated. Yeah. It's part of a systematic issue, a part of a cultural issue yeah. that, that we need to drastically change. We'll be back after a quick break. Before you listen to this great episode of Partner with Survivor, we'd just like to tell you about a powerful new practice tool the Safe and Together Institute has launched. Our perpetrator pattern mapping tool has been available for 10 years, but now it's available for the first time in a web-based version. What it does is really help you map perpetrators' patterns of behavior onto child family functioning, talk about its intersections with mental health, substance abuse, and other issues, address intersectionalities, worker safety, all in an easy-to-use online package that protects the confidentiality of your information and lets you wrap it all up in a neat little package, basically, to print it out and to kind of document all those different pieces of information. This is a tool that can be used by both survivors and practitioners. And for the very first time, it's available immediately online without any other prior training. The training is embedded in this powerful practice tool so that teams uh, that have not been trained in Safe and Together can immediately begin mapping in an effective way. That's right. It's like having a Safe and Together coach in your back pocket is what I like to say. There you go. So we really encourage you to go to our virtual academy, academy academy.safetotogetherinstitute.com. Check it out. You know, you can subscribe to it immediately or you can check out a free demo version for 30 days. So please reach out to us and try this new tool. Now enjoy this great episode of Partner with Survivor. Yeah, I think that what what's happened is we're so habituated to abuse because so many of us grew up in course of control and abuse that, you know, we really believe um, that those behaviors are acceptable in relationship and we believe that it's a natural part of the relationship dynamic mm-hmm. when it really, really is not. It is incredibly destructive. Um, and you you talked about how in the UK now, in the schools, they're doing um, work around healthy relationships and that one of the questions they ask is, what's the question they ask about, uh, does your partner make you... Oh, this is one of our questions. So when oh. Luke and I speak at conferences... Yeah. Um, we we try and find new ways of exploring the someone's life. Um, yeah. So we know how prevalent domestic abuse is, and we know that most victims never seek help. Mm-hmm. So what can we do to, to highlight those victims? And one question uh, we like to use and, and, and advocate is asking 
women, you know, does your partner make you feel good about yourself? Right. And it's such an easy question to open many doors. Yeah. Such an easy question to answer. And that's the sort of question that I think my mum would have answered truthfully. I think yeah. she might have answered that question with no. Yeah. No, he doesn't. Yeah. Um, and yeah. That, that, that might be able to open a few more doorways to having conversations about what someone's going through. So for anybody listening, I think it's really important for them to hear the coercive controllers are really charming human beings. Mm. They treat everybody else very, very well. They're very funny. They're very engaging. They're usually not miserable blokes all around or miserable humans all around. Um, and that's actually, I love the way that you frame that because I'm always trying to tell people who say, oh, but he's such a nice guy. Mm. Oh, but he seems like such a great dad. I saw him laughing with his kids and playing with them the other day, so he must be a great guy. And, and your, your description of the fact that it shows that there's an actual choice, that yeah. that person can be a self-regulated human and not abuse other people, yeah. but they feel entitled to torture and abuse and control their family members yeah. as if there's some uh, expression of their own ego or as if they're their property, you know. Um, and I, I think that that's a, a really important distinction. Yeah, that's, I think that's our answer when we get asked, you know, did our father have a mental health issue? Um, and the simple answer is, like you said, he respectfully treated our postie, our doctors, our, mm-hmm. our neighbours, and everyone externally from our family, he treated with respect and kindness. Mm-hmm. Someone who had no control over themselves Mm-hmm. wouldn't be able to choose who they're nice to and who they mm-hmm. abuse and control. And, mm-hmm. and so our father only abused his family mm-hmm. and was nice to everyone else. And that showed he had control over himself. Mm-hmm. He had control over his choices. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was choosing to behave the way he behaved towards us. Yeah. And that was because he believed that he was entitled to behave that way yeah. um, because of how he saw his position in the family because he was a man, because he was a father. Right, right. Yeah, a lot of times I I see that uh, coercive control and abuse is couched as I'm just being the disciplinarian, mm. I'm just being the man of the family, um, I'm just teaching my children how to live in the world, the world's hard, so I'm going to be hard on them, you know, and that yeah. somehow that's going to teach them how to, you know, be tough. Um, I'm just enforcing the rules of my ideology or religion mm. on my family, and they better comply and if they don't you know there's going to be hell to pay emotionally Mm. um and you know so i think that those are all really really important pieces of understanding that that some some ways we're masking course of control is by buying into these rigid and fixed gender roles yeah right and and uh thoughts that that harming another person is a form of discipline that controlling them is a form of discipline Um, and none of that's okay. And it's just continuing to hide the realities and the harm of abuse. Mm. And the fact that your mom had, you know, MS and trigeminal neuralgia, autoimmune conditions are a really common uh, side effect of long-term abuse, yeah. exhaustion, fatigue, depression, anxiety, substance abuse. That's another point all of as those, well. Like yeah. We mustn't treat the mental health of victims as being completely detached from the abuse they're suffering. Mm-hmm. There's a correlation completely. Like mum 
was being yeah deprived of sleep. That mm-hmm. was I felt like looking back now, he tortured man. Mm-hmm. Like you said, it's like military torture. He deprived her of sleep. He he created this environment of constant fear in yeah. the house. You he never know what's going to happen. Watching her, yep. he was always criticizing and demanding yeah. her. Yeah, yeah. And like we all suffered with our mental health. Yeah. Mum especially and Charlotte towards the end especially. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and our father's mental health as well was um, discussed with, with a GP. Um, and they were sort of treated as, as equal. Like right. just out of nowhere, right. just mental health appeared. But actually for us, it was because we were trying to get by and survive each day mm-hmm. in an environment of fear and chaos that he mm-hmm. was creating. And his mental health was, it, like uh, troubles were as a result of him expecting his family to meet demands and criteria mm-hmm. that he set. Unex- unachievable expectations. Right. He, w- he expected us to be his slaves mm-hmm. and we were challenging that expectation. Yeah, yeah. So his mental health uh, issues that he was talking to his mm-hmm. GP about were, were his own creation. Yeah. He, he was expecting the world to be one where he was God. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we, like you said, we fitted his rigid gender roles. Yeah. We didn't want that. We wanted freedom. We wanted happiness. Yeah. And so really, we must, we must be careful when we talk about mental health and domestic abuse because mm-hmm. when a perpetrator and the victims have mental health issues they're not the same mm-hmm. and they don't deserve equal amounts of sympathy mm-hmm. yeah um, my mum's mental health yeah. deserved sympathy my father's deserved challenging and a lot of times what we see is that um violence is couched in terms of the well they must have been mentally ill and that is so so wrong mm-hmm. there's plenty of mentally ill women who don't murder their partners or their children yeah Okay, so let's just wipe that off the table and yeah. stop that. Stop that. Cut that shit out, people. And then, you know, the the other piece of that is that just I want to speak, you know, to my experience, of course, of control. I did grow up in, in domestic violence, child abuse, and it was fairly severe and extensive and sexual abuse. Um, but then I didn't know what a good relationship looked like. So when I got into a relationship that was coercively controlling, I thought, well, well this is better. I'm not being hit right I'm not being um, I'm not being abused in that way Um, and so it took me a really long time Mm. to figure out that that's what I was experiencing so we really want to thank Ryan Hart for being a part of our conference in Melbourne and also for his contribution to this lived experience podcast Um, And we hope that this will help a lot of people understand what coercive control is um, and what it looks like in relationship as opposed to physical violence. I want to add my thanks to all the lived experience uh, speakers, Ryan and uh, Kira and the other ones who really had the courage to speak their truth and also Tosh and and to honor um, their own experience and, and those uh, of others who have been harmed by their perpetrators. And so this was a great experience for me to be yeah. part of this. It was wonderful. If you want to get more information about the Safe and Together model, you can go to safeandtogether.com. Um, and within this podcast, Partner with a Survivor, Episode 9 is a friends and family episode. Um, if you have a loved one who is living in abuse or coercive control and you don't know how to speak to them about that, I do recommend that you listen to that podcast. And if you're listening to this on Buzzsprout, just know that it can be uh, also heard on Apple Music and Google Podcasts and and also on Spotify. So just please, uh, if you enjoy this, uh, reach out to us, give us your comments, 
share this with other people. Yeah, so signing off till the next time. Till the next time.